This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. This morning, we are going to take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. The change in text, the departure from our series in Exodus, which Lord willing will return to next week, is due to the end of the year, the first year of our Answering God's Challenge uh, capital campaign and the beginning of year two of that campaign as we are working to raise funds to begin construction on uh, an addition to this building, new sanctuary, and office space, classroom space, uh, information's available in brochures. Many of you have them, but brochures out on the table out front and over here. And as part of that uh, end of the first year, beginning of the second year, we're going to uh, Look at a different text this morning, kind of in connection with the capital campaign. Second Corinthians chapter nine, uh, beginning in verse six. It's page 968 in the church Bibles there in the chairs. Hear the word of God. Paul says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Our Father, as we turn our attention to your word now, we do so uh, recognizing that this is your word uh, while it came from, it was written by Paul, uh, we recognize, Father, the work of your Holy Spirit in him and through him, so that what he wrote here were the very words of God. Father, we pray as we study these words, that you would feed our souls, stir our hearts to worship you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God is concerned not just with what we do. He is concerned about that, but not just with what we do, but how we do it. Case in point, Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, as it's called, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is giving instructions 
about giving and about praying and about fasting. Good things, as long as they're done the right way. He says when you give, don't uh, draw attention to yourself. Don't give out of the desire simply to be seen by people, to have the approval of people. He says when you fast, don't uh, make an effort to look like you're suffering, to look like you're hungry, to look haggard or weary, so that people will see you and think what a spiritual person you are. When you pray, don't just go out and try to draw attention to yourself and uh, make a big prayer designed to impress those around you. Jesus said, if you're doing that for the approval of men, you may well get the approval of men. That's all you'll get because God is not impressed, but rather give secretly, fast quietly, pray in a hidden way, because your motive is not people or the approval of people, it's the glory of God. God is concerned about what we do, yes, but he is equally concerned about how we do it. And we learn uh, when David is chosen uh, to be the next king of Israel, man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Not just what we do, but how we do it. What's the motivation? What's going on in our own hearts? Things that people may never see, but the Lord certainly does. Now, the verses that we have read, our text this morning, uh, are a conclusion of a section in 2 Corinthians in which Paul is talking about a special project that he is managing. That special project was a collection from believers, from churches in the region of Asia Minor, where he was ministering, that he himself and others with him were going to take back to Jerusalem for the relief of believers brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem, who were suffering right there in the capital of Judaism. Their uh, Christian faith did not necessarily endear them to the powers that be or the society around them, and many of them uh, were suffering in their work or unable to work uh, because of hostility toward them as believers. And so Paul was taking up this collection, and he has a great deal to say about it, much more than what we just read uh, but, but what we read, as he says at the beginning of verse 6, is the main point. The point is this. You know, when someone's talking to you, you know, and they say, now, here's my point. That's, that's when you know it's time to start listening, because they're about to tell you what you really need to know. Well, you really need to know all of what Paul says, but he says, let me draw this to a Let me summarize. The point is this, and that's what we're, go- we're going to be looking at this morning. Because, like Paul, this church is engaged in a special project. Uh, Obviously, our regular tithes and offerings go to support the regular budget, the maintenance of the ministry of this church, and that's necessary. But in our desire to expand the facilities, that's kind of an above and beyond special project that we're working on. Uh, Many of you attended the celebration dinners last week, the two of them that we had, where we got an overview of where we've been, what's happened in the first year, raising money to uh, begin construction on this new building uh, how far we've come, but also how far we have to go to be able to get the space that we would like to have to continue to uh, to minister here and to expand and to grow, to make room for people who would like to be here. 
So this sermon is tied in with the Answering God's Challenge campaign. Now, in our text, Paul is giving instructions to those who are participating in this special project, this relief project. Well, those instructions also apply to us. Uh, in any of our giving, certainly giving to the church uh, to support the regular budget. But specifically, I want us to think about it with an eye toward this special project that we have undertaken. Because what Paul says about how they should give in their day applies to us in our day as well. Now, giving is a simple thing. And yet, uh, God's word here reminds us of several attitudes that we need to have if we're going to give, that go beyond just writing a check, putting money in the plate, whatever it might be, which the Lord certainly sees, but also what's going on in our hearts that the Lord sees as well. So let's look at these three attitudes that Paul describes here. First of all, an attitude of generosity. Give generously. We see this in verse 6. The point is this, he says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, sowing and reaping is an agricultural metaphor. And to take it in its most literal sense, Paul is saying if a farmer goes out there and scatters 10 or 15 seeds, uh, he's going to get back a fairly meager harvest. Not all of those seeds will germinate. Uh, and among those that do, uh, it will just it won't be that big of a harvest. He won't get back that much. Now, if he goes out and scatters ten thousand to fifteen thousand seeds, then he is going to reap a much bigger harvest simply because he's put more into it. Now, Paul isn't speaking of farming; he's speaking here of giving. Or, if we want to put it in. Uh, uh, more of a, a modern-day term, he's speaking of investing. He's speaking of the principle that you're not going to get out of something any more than you put into it. Uh, some of you were here last night to hear Stephen Nielsen uh, for our Aletheia Forum, and he made the point as he was playing these pieces, difficult pieces, flawlessly in a spectacular fashion, uh, that someone once commented, commented to him how he made it seem so easy. But all they're seeing is the fruit of countless hours and hours and years of drill and repetition and tedium, his word, that goes into being able in, in 15 minutes and an hour and two hours of playing to produce music of that difficulty and that caliber. You see the, the reaping. What you did not see was the sowing. He can play like that, one, because God has put the talent and the abilities there, but two, because he himself uh, has put the, the, the sowing of hours of practice and training and drill that go into reaping the kind of playing that we heard uh, for all too short a time last night. You get out of something what you put into something, and that's essentially what Paul is saying here. This is like investing. You can invest a uh, dollar in the stock market, and over a long period of time, uh, you'll get back a certain amount. 
If you invest $100,000 in the stock market, you will reap a much larger reward over time simply because you've put more into it. Same principle as Paul is talking about here. Now, we need to think of giving in that way. Giving generously because money given is not money gone. Money given is money invested. There is a return. There is a reaping that follows the sowing. Now, Paul also applies this to the Christian life. In Galatians, he talks about our behavior. He says, he who sows to the flesh will reap from the flesh, from our fallen nature, death, corruption, destruction. The person who caters to his fallen nature, who serves his fallen nature, will reap something from that. The person who sows to who he is in Christ, who, who serves the Lord, who sows seeds of obedience, is going to reap something good from that. Again, same principle as he's talking about here with giving. Money given is not money lost. It is money invested, and there is a return. There is a bountiful reaping. Now, what kind of reaping? Well, we could say certainly reaping in this life. There is a return, there is a gain that we will see from investing in this building project. Uh, not the least of which would be the building itself. Uh, we will reap the benefit of a beautiful and larger building that will, at one, enable us all to worship together rather than having two morning services. That will uh, make room for people who want to be at Old Peachtree, which is a desire that we have. Uh, as Owen pointed out, our, our purpose is not growth for growth's sake, but to be a healthy church, and a healthy church, especially in an area like ours, typically would be a growing church. Uh, those are a couple of the benefits that we would, that we would reap. Uh, a building that we would trust would be here not just for us, but for our children, for their children, uh, or the equivalent, uh, if our children are living somewhere else, uh, who will one day worship uh, in this place. Not just for this life, though, uh, and, and maybe even in this life, uh, less tangible things like people who may come to know the Lord in that new building, hearing the preaching of the word, people you may or may never know. And so those are ways that we reap as we give generously, but also for the life to come. By investing in the kingdom of heaven here, we are reaping uh, dividends in the life to come. Now, yeah, that seems mercenary. Well, Paul himself uses that argument in First Corinthians chapter, or sorry, First Timothy chapter six. Uh, Paul himself uh, says that we who have possessions, who have wealth, are to do good. To be, this is uh, six eighteen, First Timothy six eighteen. To do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. Listen, thus. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that what they may take hold of is that which is truly life. Uh, and in other places in the scripture, uh, talks about investing in such a way that we reap a reward for that in heaven. So, the principle here is to give generously because we recognize that money given is not money gone, it's money invested. There is a return, tangible and tangible, intangible returns for this life, for the life to come. So that's the first attitude that we're to have. It's a recognition that by giving generously, we are blessing ourselves. We are blessing others as well. Second attitude that he mentions here is in verse 7, and that is to give gladly. To give gladly. Look at verse 7. Paul says, each one must give as he has made up his mind. 
not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's look first there at what he says about how not to give. First of all, he says we're not to give reluctantly. We're not to give begrudgingly. Really, it's better not to give than to give reluctantly, to give begrudgingly, to give as if somehow God's doing you wrong or the church is doing you wrong and asking you to give. Um, Another way not to give, he says, is under compulsion. We're not to give under compulsion. Now, as a church, we don't physically compel you to give. Um, you know, Mike's not going to show up at your door. Mike and Owen, two tallest members of our church, intimidating physical presence, show up at your door and ask, you know, where's your pledge? We're not leaving until we get that pledge. No, uh, we don't, we don't compel you, but there might be other reasons you feel under compulsion. Maybe it's your spouse who said, yes, we are going to give, and you're angry about that. Uh, that's not a reason to give, uh, or your guilt has become unbearable, whatever it might be. Um, Paul says that the Lord sees that. You're not to give reluctantly as if money given is money gone, money lost. You're not to give under compulsion. This is something you have to do. You really don't want to do it. There are things we do under compulsion that we don't want to do, but we have to do it. Paul says don't give it that way. That, that, you're not, you may fool people. You're not fooling the Lord. So then positively, how are we to give? Well, he says a couple of things there. One, as the conviction of your mind. Look what he says in verse 7. As each one has made up his mind. In other words, that there's a conviction there that you want to give. That in this case, it is your conviction that this building and its construction is, and in the raising of funds for it is a worthwhile project. That it is an important project. That it is a uh, a good project in the sense that it will bear fruit for years to come, not the building itself, although it just its physical presence says something about the church, but more the building as a means to an end of more people reached with the gospel, being able to offer more Sunday school classes, all kinds of things that we could do with, with the additional space. That's the conviction of your mind. This is a good thing to do, and you want to be part of it, and you want to support it. That's what Paul says, as each one has made up his mind. Another reason he gives positively uh, along the same lines is for God loves a cheerful giver. That's an interesting statement. I guess cheerful there could be considered the opposite of reluctant, the opposite of being under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. That's an odd statement. How many times in the Bible do you find it saying God loves something? Not very often. In fact, I, I kind of looked at that, did some research on that, searched it. Um, it says God loves a cheerful giver. What else, what else does God love? Some of you have read the Mitford books, Jan Karen's Mitford series. And uh, Father Tim's wife, Cynthia, will say, you know, I love such and such. And Father Tim will say, what else do you love, Cynthia? And Cynthia will rattle off three random things, very specific things that she loves. Well, what else does God love? The Bible tells us some things. Second Chronicles 2.11, God loves his people. This occurs in different places. You may say, I love you, or I love Israel. I love the gates of Zion. It may take different forms, but basically in several different places, God says, I love my people. Psalm 37.28, God loves justice. 
the word can also have the sense of righteousness. But the, the point is God loves justice. Psalm 146, verse 8, the ESV does say, God loves the righteous, those who are in relationship with him, those walk, who walk in obedience before him. Isaiah 48, 14, God loves the one who declares the truth about God, about who he is. And there's really not much more beside that. We find it says God loves something. Until we come to here, and it says God loves a cheerful giver. Because that cheerful attitude in giving says a great deal about your heart and about how you view view your money, your possessions, and about how you view the Lord. So God loves a person who gives gladly, which, by the way, does not earn God's love. It's not some sort of merit that earns God's love. But it is giving gladly because of the grace of God and as a result of the grace of God. There's nothing we can do that earns God's love by any means. But the person who is willing to give cheerfully, to give gladly, God loves that person. Boy, that's not a reason to be willing to give gladly, generously. I don't know what it is. So two attitudes so far, to give generously, to give gladly. And the third one he mentions, this actually takes up the rest of the text, is to give expectantly. To give expecting something is going to happen because you gave. Now, we see in verse 8 through 10, we give expectantly, specifically, that God will provide. Notice uh, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God is able to make all grace to you, having all sufficiency. So we give expecting that God will provide. One, he has already provided. Provides that we might give. First Timothy 6, passage we looked at earlier, says the same thing. God blesses us with wealth to enjoy that we might enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with enjoying it. That's a good thing to do. Thanking God for it, enjoy it. But part of the reason he gives us wealth is so that we can enjoy it, but also so that we can do good with it. So that we can bless others with it. And in fact, one of the best ways to enjoy your wealth is to bless other people with it. So God has already provided And by the way, be careful about lifestyle inflation. Just because you get a raise doesn't mean you need to get a new car or a bigger house. Do you ever think about God giving you a raise in order so you can give more money? To make it a goal to be increasing the percentage of your income you're giving away? That's a cool thing. That's an exciting, exciting thing. God will provide. He's provided so that we can give, but you think, well, wait a minute. If I really start giving at this level, will we have enough? You give expectantly, not only because God has provided, but because God will provide. Saying, Lord, I'm giving this. I'm trying to be reasonable, not being foolhardy here, but but we really do want to be generous here. But we're also trusting you to supply what we need. And this verse says that he will, in fact, do it. It's been said you can't outgive God, and that's absolutely true. Expectant that God will provide. Expectant that God will multiply. We give expectantly that God will multiply uh, what we give. See this in, in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. See, he is the one himself who supplies what you have. Will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Not only that God will provide. 
but that God will multiply. Now, I love the verse in Ephesians. It says, God will do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. A prime example of that is the feeding of the 5,000. God can take what we offer and, and, and use it far out of proportion to its actual size. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000, you know, the, the boy has five loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Well, they're adequate in the hands of Jesus because with it, he's able to feed this crowd of 5,000 men plus the women and the children. God takes what we give. We give it expectantly that he will multiply it, that he will use it far out of proportion to what it is. And along the way, verse 11, enrich you in every way for all your generosity. You will be enriched in every way. There's blessing that comes back to you. Again, that principle of, of, of reaping what we sow. So give expectantly that God will provide. He's already provided, will continue to provide for you. Expectantly that God will multiply what you give. Pray. That's one reason we pray when we bring the offering is not just because it's in the order. That's what we do. But that's a sincere prayer that God would use that and multiply that to do far more than we would expect or imagine. And then last, uh, we give expectantly that God will be glorified in what we give. Look at verses 12 through 15. Paul mentions in those verses several ways that God is, is glorified there. He's, he's glorified in the thanksgiving of those who are benefited by their generosity. Look at verse 12. The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, which is what they're giving for to meet needs, right? Well, it's doing that. It's going to meet their needs, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see, as they meet the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem, they are giving thanks to God for this provision. God is being glorified through the thanksgiving of those who are benefited. And certainly we would anticipate that result of building our building, that there would be thanksgiving to God among those who come and worship there, those who come to know Jesus there, whose lives are forever changed because of that place and because of what happens in that place. Thanksgivings to God for the, for the benefits of your giving. That God would be glorified in thanksgiving. Also, that God would be glorified in the demonstration of genuine hearts for God. People could give under compulsion. People could give reluctantly. But generally, when people really give, it's because they love the Lord, because they love his kingdom, and because they love people and want to see people know the Lord. It's an expression of a genuine heart for God. Look at verse 13. Paul says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others. In other words, they recognize the reality of the, the hearts of the believers in Asia Minor that they submit to their confession of the gospel of Christ. That that's not just a, a confession with their mouth, but the gospel has, has changed their hearts. They give thanks for the reality of these people who love the Lord, whose lives themselves in Asia Minor are being changed as they is this giving is an expression of their hearts for God. So it's an expression of, of genuine love for the Lord. And then also God be glorified as his people imitate his own generosity. And that's where Paul ends, verse 15, with his own thanksgiving. 
Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, in the context, you might think, well, he's talking about uh, the gift of generosity on the part of Asia Minor or the gift of meeting the needs of the, the believers in Jerusalem. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He ends by coming back to, to God's own giving as God himself gave generously, as God himself gave gladly, as God himself gave expectantly when he so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. That's what Paul means when he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible, his unspeakable gift, a gift that human words cannot fully capture, a gift that is so magnificent that language fails to describe it. That's where Paul ends. And so as we give to glorify God in the thanksgiving of those who are benefited, to glorify God in the expression of hearts that truly love him, we also glorify God because we are imitating, if only in a very pale way, the gift that God has given to us. As we enter the second year of answering God's challenge, what you give is an important question. And as, as Owen Malcolm, chairman of our uh, capital Cam- campaign committee, uh, likes to say, what we're, not at, what we're asking for is not equal amounts, but equal sacrifice. That you give as you've determined to give. As you prayed and put that before the Lord. So what you give is, is a matter of, of importance, of equal importance, greater importance. Is not what you give. The question is, how will you give? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for this church. Thank you, Father, for how generous uh, this church has been to give gladly and with expectation, and expectation rewarded as you have used the gifts of your people, uh, monetary and otherwise, in building up this church and making this a strong and healthy church. And, Father, we look forward to what you will do in years to come. Father, this campaign is put before you. We want your will to be done. We want you to be glorified. We want you to be pleased in all of this. Uh, We pray that your will would be done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.